Episode 3 The Murder of Kathy Wilhoyt. In 1985, on June 26th, between the small towns of Turleton and Jennings, Oklahoma, which are just west of Tulsa, explosions rang out at a fireworks warehouse, eventually killing 21 people. People described this incident as explosions sounding like a nuclear explosion. They could be heard for miles away. At the time, it was believed to have been the worst incident of its kind in U.S. history. In July of 1985, the band Queen would perform at Wembley Stadium in London as a part of the Live Aid Pop Concert series. Concerts that were to raise money for famine relief in Ethiopia. These days, this is largely considered to be Queen's best live performance ever. In December of 1985, the Unabomber would claim his first victim after his 10th bomb would explode, killing the man instantly. But 33-year-old mother of two, Kathy Wilhoyt, would live to see none of that, because on June 1st, 1985, Two patrolmen who rode horseback in Tulsa would be called to her apartment as a part of a welfare check after neighbors heard her children screaming for hours. Today, we're going to discuss the murder of Kathy Wilhoyt and the injustice that this family has dealt with over the last 37 years. And today, we're going to be talking about the 1985 murder of Catherine Wilhoyt, which happened in Tulsa, I think, technically. Yeah, it happened in Tulsa. Which is weird, because, like, the trial ends up happening in Pawhuska. But I digress. And today we're actually doing something kind of fun. We're, um, we have our very first guest on our podcast. It's all very exciting. And I suppose her name, technically, these days is Alana Cooper, but I always refer to her as Alana Keegan Cooper. <laughs> Well, I haven't changed it yet um, to my married name, Cooper, but so it technically is Alana Keegan, but uh, Alana Keegan Cooper, Alana Cooper. So Alana runs Buried Cold Cases on Facebook, which is this like mega group of true crime. I don't want to use the word fanatic, but true crimers um, from kind of all over the globe at this point. Um, it's been kind of fun to watch it grow from this teeny tiny little group into this huge thing which is awesome but Alana has a kind of a sad connection to true crime in Oklahoma and that is that her mother-in-law way before she was her mother-in-law was a victim of a serial killer her name was I always say her name wrong but it's Tally Joe Cooper right well, I, her first name technically was Joe, but she hated that. Um, so she went by Tally, which was so her middle so name. Okay, so, so it's Joe Tally Cooper. Cooper. I always, yeah, I always yeah. it. But she was a victim of a serial killer when your husband was very small. Yes, he was eight months old, um, and he was in the house when it happened. And that was back in uh, 1987 um, in Norman, Oklahoma. And you guys didn't get a conviction until, my gosh, about recently, yeah? Yeah, about 10 years after. So back in, I think it was like 1998 is when the trial actually happened. There was a DNA match, I think, in 1997 or maybe late 1996, um, where they kind of found out who the killer was then. 
um, and then he was put to death for her murder in 2007. And his name was Frank Dwayne Welch. Um, and he also was convicted of murdering another victim about two months later after Tally, so in May of 1987. Um, and her name was Deborah Stevens. And at this point, Alana is kind of on the on the path of fighting the good fight because she's pretty convinced that Frank has more victims. And I have to say, honestly, he probably does. You kind of escalate up to that point. You don't de-escalate from it. So he probably kept going. I think the evidence probably tells us that. But in in all of her research, she kind of brought us all together, and we talk a lot. Her, Jen, and I about various murders across Oklahoma and when we started doing the murder in the summer thing we asked if she wanted to be a guest and lucky for us she said yes so the thing that really interested me the most is that Kathy's murder happened in 1985 when we were still getting a lot of media coverage but you find zero articles in 1985 about her murder zero you don't even find an obituary for her nothing I thought that was so strange because I, you know I have a subscription to like Tulsa World um, as well so I can look in their archives There's and nothing. you know I maybe they don't have many archived from like 1985 but I've I found ones I think before so um, and then on you know on top of that newspapers.com and it was like you know I, I thought it was really strange and the first article that I did find um, archive for her was 1987 covering the trial and that one they spelled her name wrong so it, it took a while to find that one too they spelled it with a C instead of a K and it wasn't even the trial it was like the end of yeah. the trial and that was even when he was acquitted? Yeah. It, well, no, it was when he was convicted. And that was even stranger to me, too, because we're going to cover the fact that somebody gets convicted, but we didn't cover the whole trial, which is a little... The whole thing was a little strange to me because it was kind of a vicious murder. On June 1st of 1985, uh, neighbors of Kathy's, she lived in what has been described as kind of a housing project situation in Tulsa, Osage County. It was the Osage Hills Apartments, I think is what it was called. But it was over on Country Club Drive. Her daughter described it to me as like a townhouse situation. So there was like an upstairs and a downstairs. Yeah. And the neighbor called the police around three o'clock in the afternoon on the 1st of June because the neighbor heard the kids crying and had been hearing the kids crying for some time and Kathy hadn't lived there long but they they knew that was unusual for the kids to be crying that long so they called the police to have them come over and I guess the police could see through a window they saw Kathy laying on the floor in the living room and they got permission to break a window to get in and that's when she gets found is laying on her living room floor so the daughters, there are two of them, um, they were four months old and 14 months old, and they were both in their cribs. So, Yeah, they were upstairs, mm -hmm. and one of them, the four-month-old, was actually a premature baby. She was hooked up to a heart monitor 
to detect if anything was amiss. And I, I have to assume that they checked that because why wouldn't you? I mean, that's, yeah. that's a piece of evidence. And the daughter did say something interesting is that she kind of heard some varying stories that maybe the heart monitor itself had been knocked over. So maybe somebody had gone upstairs. They found her body in the living room. They did. She was naked except for her t-shirt, which was still on her. Um, it was still over her head. It was Her arms were still through it, but it was pulled up over her mm -hmm. um, breasts and kind of up over the back of her shoulder blades. And she was laying on the floor like in front of the couch. And didn't, didn't the autopsy report also discuss where I think they were saying like some of that shirt was actually like cut. Like not like this way, but like cut um, horizontally. Yeah, it, it almost seems like like in reading the autopsy, it almost sounds like in the frenzy to what ends up happening is they cut her throat that maybe they cut her shirt because I can't imagine any other reason to cut it horizontally because it's not like they were trying to cut it off of her. Well, maybe they were trying to cut it above like her breast so it was exposing it like maybe that was part of like what they wanted you know because they didn't I, I I don't know I was trying to kind of make sense of that too and I don't maybe there's not that much sense to make of it or maybe it's just kind of like you know or maybe that was part you know that I, I don't know I don't quite know what to make of that well there was a lot of focus on the breast there was there was uh, also yes. a bite mark on one of her breasts and that becomes a really big part of the case later on. But what they determine happens is that they believe that she let her attacker in. They believe that she knew her attacker in some way, shape, or fashion because there was no evidence of forced entry. And they believe that they had been on the couch together. That at some point she gets knocked in the face a few times. She, The person then starts to strangle her. At what at which point they believe she becomes unconscious. I don't know why they believe she becomes unconscious, but that is something they believe. They believe they drag her off the couch and then they slice her throat. Now, I don't know if they believe that they sexually assault her or if they had had sexual intercourse as a part of just their time together. Because according to the autopsy, there's no actual sexual trauma. But if you read articles, they say that she was raped. I don't know if that just, you know, played more into their narrative to say that she was raped. I'm not really sure. Yeah, because the autopsy doesn't say she was sexually assaulted, right? No, it just says that there was sperm present. And that was, the sperm was in, like, because they did the oral, anal, vaginal swabs. Spermatosa was only present in the vaginal swabs. Correct. Um correct and i mean mandy uh, like and i'm sure you too jen have have read a lot of autopsy reports and a lot of the ones that i end up usually reading are ones for cases where it's kind of you know a sexually motivated homicide there is you know rape involved but um more times than not even when you know they later get convicted and and are it was rape like you're not seeing in the autopsy that there is that you know vaginal trauma or even anal trauma on there noticed i don't know if you would you would agree but i i do have seen that a lot where um i know with 
in Deborah Stevens' autopsy report, Frank Dwayne Welch, he did rape her. I think we can all agree it wasn't consensual, but there was no, you know, sexual trauma um, noted in the autopsy. Now, whether they found, uh, did other tests later that aren't included in the autopsy, I don't know, but I've seen that with a few other cases as well where... Yeah. Not always. I mean, not always. There's not always... Yeah severe trauma that you're noting especially in the 80s i don't know how in depth they did that either in an autopsy i don't know if they were doing necessarily an internal exam to see if there was internal trauma that shows sexual assault because you know just because you don't see it on the outside doesn't mean there isn't any on the inside mm-hmm. yeah yeah so i'm not really sure how in depth they were going with that they have kind of a big mystery on their hands when they find Kathy. So Kathy was married to the father of both of her children. However, they were separated. They had just separated. She'd only lived in this apartment for about two weeks when she was murdered. But it does seem that they were kind of trying to work through their problems, right? They were still seeing each other. Um, Sometimes he slept over at her house. Sometimes she slept over at his house. However, that night he went home to sleep at his house and their daughter even now says her dad was a man that liked his sleep it was a routine thing for him to unplug or turn off his phone when he slept he he did not want anybody waking him up and he did that that night he unplugged his phone and passed out for like 12 hours to the point that people were banging on his door trying to wake him up when they find Kathy because nobody could get a hold of him in the in the, his stated alibi, I think the DA suggests that he did a bunch of drugs and passed out. Well, I mean that becomes the easy thing to say when you're trying to pin it on the husband who has a mm-hmm. has a prior drug history, is to say, well, maybe he was drugged out. He doesn't remember killing her. Yeah, but he totally did. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it becomes easy to <laughs> comes a patsy for somebody to try and blame it. It becomes pretty apparent to Greg Wilhoyt pretty quickly that they're trying to blame this whole thing on him because this wasn't a robbery motivated homicide she still had her wedding band on she still had her jewelry on nothing was taken from the house the kids weren't taken from that like nothing nothing was taken the only other option is somebody was really pissed off at kathy their minds yeah and who better to be pissed off at her than her recently separated husband her in-laws so greg's parents hire a private detective at some point and even the private detective is like hey these are leads maybe you guys should look at these leads and they were like no thanks and you know greg's our guy and what becomes the trump evidence for them is the bite mark on her breast he gets arrested about six months after kathy is murdered and in 1987 goes to trial the bite mark is their big thing they get a bunch of dentists to go on the stand one of which had graduated dental school like six months prior and they all say yep this is it this is greg wilhoyt's bite mark impression this is absolutely him not a forensic expert just dentist yeah, yeah, not necessarily a forensic expert, just someone that went to OU Dental, I assume. And his lawyer uh, was the town drunk 
apparently saw no issue with the fact that they were slaughtering his client on this on the stand and said well if they if they think it's greg's bite mark it must be greg's bite mark and there's nothing i can do for that the jury went out for a couple hours and i i do mean a couple hours i think they deliberated for three or four hours came back and found him guilty of first degree murder and sentenced him to death yeah mr briggs lawyer for greg he, uh, he didn't hire anyone to refute bite mark testimony. He just let it go. He did. And I I think the parents and um, of Greg and then the private investigator that they had hired, I think had already like had an expert or maybe possible multiple experts that had said like this wasn't him. So they not only did he not hire it, he didn't even take up these people that were willing to testify, from my understanding, uh-huh. um, and, and have them. So, like, I think the parents kind of set up everything, um, and they kind of, and he still didn't didn't do that. And then they think they went on to further do that, It's unless I'm wrong on that. They ignored a lot of evidence, is what they did, that said it wasn't Greg. There were a bunch of cigarettes around... Kathy's body. Now, Kathy was a smoker, but none of those cigarettes matched her brand. Greg wasn't a smoker, and there were something like eight or nine of them around her. Like, there were a lot. Kind of suggesting that either she had smoked with somebody and kind of had casual conversation with them, or this person was, like, hanging out for a while. They also found fingerprints in the house that didn't match Kathy. And they didn't match Greg. Like, that right there is reasonable doubt. And hair. And hair. Yeah. That didn't match Greg and didn't match Kathy. Whether or not that got presented at trial, I don't know. I have to assume because it's, you know, exculpatory evidence. But I don't know. So Greg goes to death row. He sits there and immediately starts appealing his case i mean as he should have because really in 90 so he'd been sitting there for about three years and 90 things kind of start moving and his appeals start getting kind of heard in 91 in april of 91 his appeal gets heard in court and it gets reversed on the grounds that he had insufficient counsel which he did i mean yeah absolutely he did i mean his lawyer was drunk he had his lawyer himself had a drug problem in fact his lawyer left law practice i don't think he did any more law practice after the Will Hoyt case. I think this was it. That's correct. He also had a TBI the year that he tried Greg's case. He had a traumatic brain injury. He had a severe traumatic brain injury the year that he, he tried Greg's case. And um, most likely affected him in numerous ways, including his memory, but also could have very much made his drug and alcohol use much more. That would be my assumption. He was probably overcompensating for whatever pain he was in. Yeah. The result of this is that they say, you need a new trial. Okay? You had insufficient counsel. They say that they're going to retry him in 1993. However, 
in all the hearings that come up come about prior to this because you don't go straight from you get a retrial to the trial like there's hearings and all this stuff in between in all of that what comes out is that the bite mark evidence is i don't know how to put it the bite mark evidence it gets thrown out because what happens is you have several odontologists that that's the term that is generally used for forensic dentistry it's usually forensic odontology you have several of them a bunch of which oddly enough were involved in the ted bundy case who say this is not in any way comparable to the bite mark impressions for greg wilhoyt so they say the bite mark impression that is left on kathy wilhoyt's breast is not comparable to the bite mark impression that we have with greg wilhoyt it's not even the bite mark compression, right, though, because it has to do with the bacteria they found. In the first trial, the DA presented this bacteria found within the bite mark as rare. But the truth is, it's not. And whenever they had the new odontologist come in, they proved that it was a common strand of bacteria and that um, they misrepresented it at trial. I, I think they, they misrepresented that and they misrepresented that like the actual configuration of, um, mm -hmm. you know, Greg Wildholt's teeth were um, a match to the configuration of teeth marks from um, the bite mark, too. So it was just totally... They kind of misrepresented the whole bite mark thing anyway, because one of the direct quotes is that bite patterns are as unique as fingerprints. Yeah. That was said from, like, the DA or something. And the fact is, is that they're not. They're not. I mean, they're not proven to be unique from one person to another. Human skin isn't exactly conducive to holding a bite mark because it moves. After the judge says, you can't have the bite mark evidence, we can't reintroduce that because the state still wanted to retry this guy. And the judge says, we, we have like 25 people saying the bite mark evidence is no good. The DA went on to say that the defense the new defense was using odontologists and paying them to say these things as if he didn't pay the dentist who represented this evidence at trial so he's trying to make them seem like they've done something wrong by paying these people to do their jobs here's the thing though and like as a criminologist i'm gonna say this like i've worked so many wrongful conviction cases and i have so many issues with you know these experts so many issues yeah. because uh -huh. they are getting paid to be there they are there are zero experts that are just there out of the kindness of their hearts they're getting paid to be there for both sides for both sides defense and prosecution i mean i would probably be there out of the kindness of my heart but <laughs> they don't want people like us they don't want people like us. They they want people like, what is that guy? Henry Wu or Henry Lee? What is his name? The guy who was like in the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they want guys like him who make an obscene amount of money, like $10,000 per trial to, to appear there. Okay. They're, get, they're making, that's a moneymaker for them. And mm -hmm. I have issues with that. You're getting paid to have an opinion for the side that's paying you. Fact. And that's it. I mean, yeah. you can't get around that. They're not going to pay you to testify if you don't 
back up their evidence. You know who's not getting paid to be there? The people that ran the evidence in the first place. I mean, not really. <laughs> they're getting, yeah. They're not getting paid extra to be in court. That's part of their job. No, that's part of their job duties. So, I, I, forensic experts make me insane. They really do. They, At the end of the day, they make me nuts. Well, and I think it's such a stretch to call the first two uh, dentists that testify. Experts. Because, I mean, at least the defense got actual experts. People that were well-renowned. And I think back then, you know, we know, we look back at it with 2020, you know, hindsight and today we know a lot more about forensic odontology and you know the pitfalls of it and that it really is not it's probably it's not going to be something that you should really base your your entire case around you know maybe it can help support a little bit but it's just it's not it's not dna and it's not fingerprints no it's not and it's in in so many cases so many well-known cases that bite mark evidence has been used and have completely fallen apart Mm -hmm. over the years and, and this on top of that is like, you know, and then you have uh, I, with the science that's really not as solid to actually prove somebody as, uh, you know, having bit this person or, or committed this crime. On top of that, you have you brought in people that aren't even experts in, in this field where they maybe shouldn't be that reliant. So it was just on top mm-hmm. of, you know, bad choice on top of bad choice. And yeah, they didn't know that much back then about odontology having pitfalls they probably should have known two dentists you know one of them pretty not not even out of college that long maybe shouldn't be testifying at a murder trial with their opinion when you're not even a forensic <laughs> odontologist about the only thing that you should trust from a bite mark to be solid is a swab of the dna coming from a bite mark yes and yeah there's no evidence that they did that here i i was looking for that in the autopsy maybe maybe they swabbed it and they didn't put that down in there but is that something they regularly do it swab bite marks yes now okay maybe not back then now yeah in 85 they probably wouldn't have because my god we didn't even we didn't have dna we knew it existed but we weren't using it in criminal trials yet yeah and they certainly weren't running it yet so they i would say they probably weren't but i mean they might have done it to do like blood typing on there since i mean saliva you would have if they were secretor but i oh yeah secretor i don't even think i don't think they thought about that because if that was the case that would have yeah yeah, I, I, it it, it would have came up in trial. Yeah, I, I agree. It's interesting. Because that was a big thing back then. Bite mark evidence gets thrown out. At which point, you know, the state still really wanted to retry this guy. You know, the DA is like, nope, I'm 1000% sure this guy did it. Which isn't an uncommon attitude to have as a DA no. in Oklahoma. I don't know about other states, but in Oklahoma, it's not an uncommon attitude to have. This guy was like, nope. If it wasn't the guy, I'd say it wasn't the guy, which I don't think that's the case, but whatever. He says that they have semen on a sheet from Kathy's bedroom, which was upstairs, that they're going to retest. Now, apparently they do retest this, and it comes back to Greg Wilhoit, which doesn't shock me, because again, they were still seeing each other. They were still married. 
they were still seeing each other. Yeah, and aren't they saying the whole crime happened on the couch in the living room? They're saying the whole crime happened downstairs. They have nothing else saying the crime happened anywhere other than in the living room, the downstairs area of that house. But my question is, why are we testing semen from the sheet? Why aren't we testing the semen from her body? Yeah. And you guys saw probably when you read through, I don't know if you happened to see when I sent those articles there. That was my big question because they said in a previous article, they didn't specify that it was from the sheet. He said, you know, we have semen evidence and we're going to test it now because we have DNA now. And we really didn't even know about that back then. So in that first article, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, the swab, you know, the swabs taken from autopsy. You'd think that they would have taken a rape kit as well and kept those swabs in there. Um, I mean, I think even back in 1985, that was still pretty standard, especially when you have um, something that is pretty clearly some sort of sexually motivated crime um, or likely that. And then the next article that they have is like, you know, it's from this sheet from upstairs that they've (laughs) kept frozen in a Tulsa, you know, crime lab fridge. And I'm like, okay, but what about that? You know, I, I... that's it's not probative to to me it's not to me it's not worth i mean you you couldn't hang a trial on that i mean that's her husband her husband whether they're separated obviously they couldn't because that wasn't enough for them for the judge to say you can retry this guy all of the charges get dismissed and a new trial never happens and they say you can never retry this guy you have nothing new you have nothing else you're done and they let him go and that's it the problem comes where the problem always comes in oklahoma when you get a wrongful conviction and that is they still think they had the guy so they don't reopen the case i'm not convinced that they kept all the evidence from this case i think they got lucky i think we didn't get a retest of the swabs from her body because they got rid of the other evidence and they got lucky and had a sheet in her freezer. I honest to God do. Because, you know, later we have her daughter getting older and having questions about the mother she never got to know and doesn't have any memories of and doesn't really know anything about. So she calls detectives who tell her they had told her we'll look into it or something. Yes. And that she had been a part of a a news story that aired and they also get interviewed the detectives also get interviewed at which point they say everything's been destroyed and do they have record of that do i have so many questions with that because yeah maybe it has been but i mean do we know that for sure because there's all these weird questions and like even when we're talking about this too so we're saying like this happened in Tulsa but it was on the border it was like really close to the border of Osage County instead of Tulsa County so her autopsy was done in Tulsa um at at least the FBI data indicates that um Tulsa is handling is agency handling the case but then I believe um it was tried in Osage County was it tried by an Osage County DA I don't know so then why did they get jurisdiction over that I mean there wasn't that much news coverage that we can find so I don't know you know sometimes they'll They'll move trials to a different county if they think that there's just too much bias in that county for them to get like a fair jury pool um, that are going to give a fair trial. But then like if there wasn't that much media coverage, why would you try it in Osage County unless they're also handling it? So then there's that, that like that's a really weird, you know, could it be in Osage County and Tulsa's looking in their 
their evidence storage or could it be in you know still in like a totally different place because it never got moved back into active like law enforcement storage and it's it's in storage and um some courthouse or something because it was tried and successfully tried the first time although didn't stay a success on there and, and he was ultimately acquitted so i just have a lot of questions with that and i i you know I'm not surprised that they have either lost or destroyed evidence. I'm not surprised at all. It could have happened accidentally. My question would be, where did this evidence get tested? I'm not sure if it got tested back then in Tulsa. If it got tested back then in Oklahoma City, well then odds are even higher that it got destroyed or tainted or anything else. It seems like Tulsa handled, uh, at least they had, a, I mean, they, they said they had that cheap frozen <laughs> or in a, a freezer in Tulsa and everything. Um, so I'm thinking they had their own lab. The OSBI might have been. Because I think for most of the, like when it comes to the DNA at that time and, and sometimes now, unless it, like I've seen Oklahoma City handles a lot of theirs, but I've, I've seen right. other cases outside of Oklahoma City where they end up sending it to the OSBI. And I Yeah, especially smaller places. Yeah. One problem that we do face a lot in Oklahoma is the fact that, you know, evidence and file storage tends to happen in basements and flooding happens a lot in Oklahoma. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot. So when they say destroyed, they may not mean intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes natural disasters in Oklahoma especially are known to yeah. destroy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens a lot. I can think off the top of my head at least 10 cases where we no longer even have the case files because of floods or tornadoes or what have you. I would be more shocked if they would know where any forensic evidence from a case in the 90s was. If you would like to know more about all of the cold cases of Oklahoma, you can visit us on Facebook by searching Oklahoma Cold Cases, or you can visit us at oklahomacoldcases.org, where we house a database of all the known cold cases across all of the state of Oklahoma. This includes homicides, missing persons, and unidentified persons. If you know anything about the murder of Catherine Wilhoyt, or any other murder in Oklahoma, you can contact us at throwawayspod at oklahomacoldcases.org. My name is Amanda Newland Davis, and along with Jennifer Gregg, this is The Throwaways.